the very first month that we were doing operations, this didn't just lock it down for me. Law enforcement was looking for a guy who they were like, this guy's a traffic. Within a matter of six hours, we had identified who he actually was, his uh, location. And then we sent people out to go observe and see where he was at. And he wasn't just going into one room in this hotel. He was actually going in at three. He was trafficking a girl who was pregnant, a girl that had Down syndrome, and then a third girl. Unbelievable. I mean, we actually consider that four victims rescued because like I said, one of them was pregnant. That never occurred in my mind. And and that's what is really exciting for Deliver Fund. Um, we're able to use technology and look look behind the scenes, see who's actually trafficking these victims, see where they're at, identify them, locate them, that we have the ability and ability to move very quickly and get law enforcement to be able to get warrants and get in and make arrests very quickly before these girls are just disappear again. From the nonprofit organization Orphan Aid Liberia, this is the Love Period Podcast, a show about the stories of leaders, creators, groundbreakers, and pioneers currently leading movements or organizations who have a focus on serving other people who at some point they had to lift up their anchor, step out in faith, step out into the unknown to get them where they are today. I'm your host, Jacob Burson, and on this episode of the Love Period Podcast, we talk to former Navy SEAL and the senior vice president and co-founder of Deliver Fund, Jeremy Mehew. Deliver Fund is a nonprofit organization founded and staffed by former elite intelligence operators from the CIA, NSA, FBI, Delta Force, and Navy SEALs who bring their experience in counterterrorism to bear on the human trafficking industry. Jeremy grew up in Montana, and just after high school, he left to join the Navy. He spent 10 years as a Navy SEAL. After his enlistment, he returned home to Montana and started an excavation business. Business was great. In that time, he also spent time in the Middle East doing some intelligence consulting work in the fight against terrorism. He came back home and was invited by Montana Congressman Brian Zinke to join his political team. This is when the shift began for Jeremy. Jeremy and his buddy and Deliver Fund co-founder Nick McKinley, they found a gap, a gap in attacking the human trafficking industry at its root. That's when they together began assembling this team of elite high-performance operators and intelligence personnel and all the technology that comes with them to attack and dismantle this awful, awful industry of human trafficking. So here's a story about a kid from Montana who joined the Navy, came back home after his service was up, started an excavation business, left that excavation business to create and lead Deliver Fund. It's an amazing story. So join with us today in this conversation with Jeremy Mahue. All right. Good afternoon, everybody. Jacob Burson, Love Period Podcast. And I have Jeremy Mahue online with us with Deliver Fund. Jeremy, how you doing? I'm doing great. I'm uh, here in the great state of Texas. And it's a little bit a little bit cloudy, but it's a, it's a great day. Yeah, we've been we've had several guests here the past couple episodes right there in the middle of the United States, Texas, Oklahoma, Missouri. So this uh, we found the central time zone to be uh, to be full of great folks. <laughs> I'm a Montana boy, um, so I'm you know Texas has a lot of synergies I think with with Montana, but uh, now I'm now I'm right in Dallas, right in the heart of heart of Texas, and also right in the center of the U.S. So it makes it easy for us to do uh, the work we're doing. But thanks a lot for having me on the podcast today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, man, we're we're looking forward to hearing your story and hearing the story of the Liver Fund. 
Um, I would say that Texas is probably considered the center of the universe. Um, they, they think so. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Okay. <laughs> that's right. All right. So as we get started, we kind of do kind of a warm up rapid fire session to get those brain ligaments stretched out to get ready for today's today's discussion. Now today's content is going to be some some serious content that we're going to be digging into. Uh, but there's always some room, um, especially when you get a couple of military guys together to have a to have <laughs> some uh, some good story time. So uh, you ready? Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully we don't end up making this a 10 hour podcast with our story. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Jeremy, what was the worst job you've ever had? Oh man. Worst job. Well, <laughs> you know, I, I joined the Navy because I think that I'm going to go be a Navy SEAL. What I didn't realize is like, you end up doing a lot of janitorial work <laughs> just, mm. getting, just getting to that point. So there was definitely times in, in there where I was like, how, how am I cleaning a toilet when I was going to be jumping out of helicopters? But it was, you know, it's one of those things that sort of gets you there. But there's actually one job that um, when I was just old enough to get, to get uh, paid legally uh, in Montana, I had been working for a, a family and I'd mow their yard and different stuff. And, and they had a little bit of a ranch, so I'd buck some hay bales. And then they said, okay, you're whatever, 14 and a half. So we can, we can legally pay you um, at the hotel that they own. So for one summer, I painted with a brush and a roller, like an entire hotel. <laughs> oh, they get busy work. So, but I got paid by the hour. So, you know, what do you do? Oh, that's nice. Yeah. It's, yeah. <laughs> paychecks, paycheck. Uh, four and a quarter an hour, probably, but still, I was, uh, I think that was uh, one of the longer, more like monotonous jobs that I was like, are you kidding me? Like, this is what I'm doing. But, you know, I was young. So, you got to start somewhere. So what about today? Do you still, does, I mean, do you still paint today? I mean, somebody, when it's time for, when it's time to paint the house, paint a wall, are you doing that? Or are you hiring that out? You know, if I, if I had the money, I would definitely hire it out. I think it ends up being like, it's a fairly expensive thing to pay for. So that's right. I, my wife and I bought a house here recently in Texas and there was definitely a lot of painting that ended up falling on us. And, and, uh, I don't, I don't mind doing it. It's just, uh, it's just, there's so many other things to spend your time sure. that more impactful. Uh, so it just, it's just something that's got to be done though. Right. Right. So do you ever drop the, the, my work is more important than painting the wall card <laughs> all the time. <laughs> <laughs> we, we do that at orphanage sometimes with so we'll, we'll yeah. drop the orphan card and uh, our yep. kid, my kids will look at me like, seriously, dad, you can't play that one. Yep. Okay. All right. If you could join any TV sitcom family in the history of TV sitcoms, which one would it be? <laughs> Oh man, that's hilarious. Since I don't really, I grew up without a TV. Oh my gosh. Uh, yeah. And again, I grew up in Montana, but still, I think part of the reason was my, my dad realized that if there was a TV on, he'd probably sit down and start watching it. So for his own benefit, he uh, didn't have a TV in our house until I was probably a senior in high school. Wow. But I actually missed out on a lot of those probably sitcoms. And even now I don't really, I don't really watch a whole lot of uh, television. So I don't even know um, what sitcoms there are. There, are, there is one that had uh, had us watching, and this was probably something we watched uh, when I worked for the uh, some government contracting I did overseas. The uh, the one with Charlie Sheen. It was like two uh, two men and a or two and a half men. Two and a half men. Yeah, and it was it was just funny, and uh, right. 
So, you know, I think it'd be funny to sit on a set of that one or anyone that's just got a lot of quick, quick witted humor. Right. Well, no TV to your senior year of high school. That's impressive. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You, you, you grew up like our grandparents. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, if you could pick a superpower, which superpower would it be? Uh, if there's a superpower that I could shoot lightning bolts out of my eyes and just zap all the evil, bad people that we encounter. On there you go. <laughs> yeah, I would imagine in you guys' line of work, that would uh, that would seem like the best resolution. Yeah, I mean, just just zap them into another universe. Right. Okay, good one. Lightning bolt from the eyes. Okay. Yeah. All right. If you could, here's a, this one has, this one's a choice question. If you could call yourself, you have a choice to either call yourself 20 years ago and have a conversation with your 20 years ago self, or call yourself 15 years from now and have a conversation. Which version of you would you like to talk to? It's kind of a loaded question too. It's, it's, uh, I was, I, you know, recently I've had a, a son. So my son's five months old. And somehow that, that triggers like all of these memories of your past, of, right. of you and your past. And I think about myself and even like my, you know, like, like that 10, 10 years ago or 20 years ago. And I think, man, like I didn't know anything back then. But on the other hand, I wish I could go back and I could tell myself, uh, give myself some guidance and say, look, here's, here's some things you need to be aware of in your future. And, uh, and just to keep you stepping from land, you know, stepping on landmines. Right. Right. So I, I guess if I could go back in time and actually give myself some, uh, some advice with, uh, uh, you know, that's what I would do, but I don't know if I listen to my own advice. So I'd probably be more interested, more interesting to talk to in my future. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think it would, I think we all kind of, a lot of us would look back at the past 20 years and kind of go, yeah, there's been some mistakes made, but I think it all kind of helped make me what I am today. I think I would rather talk to the future me to know what to expect in the next 15 years. That's a good point. All those things that uh, weren't necessarily the right steps that we took, yeah. uh, they all have perspective and experience so that, you know, looking back at it now, I think one of the things certainly that's important is I have a lot more grace for people. Um, because of the own, I mean, the mistakes that I've made allow me more grace with, with other people. Wow. And that's a great perspective. Yeah, that's a great perspective. Yeah. And plus we're alive today. So, um, <laughs> somehow we made it this far, maybe talking to the year 15, talking to the guy 15 years from now, he could tell me what to avoid. Yep. <laughs> All right. So <clears throat> here's where we make the shift in the love period podcast. So we believe that, uh, all of us feel like we're created for something more between heaven and earth that we kind of have maybe a call or we were created with a specific purpose. And at some point in our lives, we were able to recognize what that thing was. If you could tell us a story or maybe it's, it's multiple stories about when you, when you made that shift that got you to where you are today at deliver fund and and when that process began. Okay. So, wow. I mean, my, again, myself, 20 years ago, I was a pretty cocky, uh, at least, uh, I mean, I think that I was looking back on myself from now, I would say that I was very cocky and very probably selfish and just 
wanted to go conquer the world and do things and, and uh, was less concerned about the impact that I was going to have on, on people and more concerned about the impact that I was going to have on myself. And so, um, yeah, I got the, the chance to go into the Navy at 19 years old and go right straight into the, the Navy SEAL program, go through BUDS and become a SEAL pretty much straight through the pipeline. And so it was, uh, it was, I grew up in a fairly conservative family with a, a good Christian home. And then all of a sudden I'm in the Navy and it's like doors wide open. I get to be essentially uh, a Navy SEAL, which, you know, the best shape of your life, you're, you're running with a bunch of alpha males and it's kind of like, you're just on this rock star um, path. And, and uh, so there was a period of time there where I really, I really was mostly focused on me and maybe like my, my brothers around me, but um, not as much focused on, other people and, and just helping people. Mm. Uh, for me, my grandfather was, you know, he had a big impact on me because in a different, different phases of your life, you refer back to those people. And I refer back to things I think about that he did in different circumstances, but he was a world war II uh, veteran. And while he only did about three years, half that time, he was actually a POW. And so, and so he, he was in that greatest generation that we talk about and, but he did everything out of service. And so like my time interacting with him was always like, he, he was very quiet about helping with things, but he was always behind helping others and doing things that, that most people didn't see. Uh, He wasn't doing it for selfish reasons. He was just doing it for the betterment of humanity, really. Mm. And so, you know, I reflect back on that now and I say, you know, like I always had those, those points of reference. There was just times in my life where I was selfishly focused on my, myself, where now as I, I mean, I'm 42 now. And like I said, I, I've got a almost six month old child who just recently got married. And, and so those things also shift your perspective. But really, we started Deliver Fund about four years ago and a year prior to that. So about five, five and a half years ago is uh, I started working on a political campaign. And that's also where I started to realize, like, you know, having this, having this relationship with people is what matters most in life. And the more good we can do with that, um, you know, it's, it's a matter of of choosing impact over income, we often say. And so that's, uh, that's just a direction that I try and progress uh, each day a little bit more in, in that direction. Wow. Well, that's very, um, when you were talking about your granddad, you, you were, so we're the exact same age. I grew up working at my, my dad's tire shop. I had a grandfather who was a World War II vet. He was in the Philippines. And uh, that was one of our, one of the things we always look for in this podcast is to ask about people in your life that had an influence and you, you kind of answered that in the story. And if people have asked me before, where do I get that, that question from? And I just think back to my story about how much of an impact, you know, at the time I didn't know what my granddad was doing. And I don't know that he was necessarily intentionally raising me up 
uh, in a particular way. It's just the way he lived life. And all I knew is that working all the time and busting my tail was not fun, but I didn't realize what he was kind of molding. Um, and you're kind of echoing that same thing that there were people and you specifically said your granddad was there kind of living out an example to just live, to just be human. And that kind of had a big impact on you along the way. I would imagine that that had an impact on you on joining the Navy in the first place. It did. You know, in my family, there was, uh, my, my grandfathers on either side were briefly in the military. Um, and that was about it really. So, so my father wasn't in the military. I mean, he was a school teacher and, and I don't think that my parents were especially excited when I came home and told them that I had uh, joined the Navy and was going to go be a Navy SEAL. I think that they were, they were, uh, they knew my personality enough to know that I was, I was, uh, a thrill seeker and looking for that ultimate adventure. And I think they worried one for one for my, my safety. And then two, it was interesting. My dad actually made this comment. Um, cause he didn't, he didn't tell me a lot of things before I went, but he said, I'm concerned and I want you to be careful that there's not always that you're not always seeking some additional adrenaline rush mm. because, because at some point enough has to be enough and otherwise you're never going to be happy. Right. And so, and I think for a lot of years I was seeking that and I was always looking for a continued rush and uh, you know, and now I'm, I settled into that point in my life where maybe after a few broken bones and, and a few, uh, a few injuries where you have to, sometimes you got to get in that car wreck before you, you start to watch your speedometer. You know? Right. <laughs> right? Yeah. So, so now I, I'm, I, I see it a little bit better and, and uh, now I'm trying to live for the future more than live for the moment. Yeah. It's interesting that you say that, how we keep taking, a lot of us keep kind of keep taking that next step, thinking that next thing is going to be what brings us some kind of fulfillment. And we can do that in a variety of different ways. Your path was through one of the the most active, engaging, uh, adrenaline rushing, pumping types of line of work. And it sounds like even in even in that, there was still a gap, still a hole uh, that you, that you could feel that was missing. Yeah, for sure. I got the uh, opportunity to speak to a group of guys uh, maybe two years ago in New York City at their first meeting for this, what they call Elite Meet. So they're sponsoring guys that come out of the special operations community and then are looking for uh, jobs in the civilian world. And so a lot of these guys have been in sometimes 20 years and, and, uh, and now they're looking for their next steps in life. And my only real thing that I had to offer them because I mean, we'd started a nonprofit. I'm, I'm offering not, not much money. If they wanted to come work for us, we didn't really have the ability to pay too many people at that point. Um, so it's not like I had jobs for them. And meanwhile, there's in that, in that room, you've got these investment bankers and all these guys that could offer millions of dollars. Um, but these guys are coming out of a very mission focused job, which mm -hmm. is awesome um, have that military mindset where they, they, they really just need to be on a mission. And what we find is a lot of those guys, they'll go and they'll chase the money when they come out because they think they have to be in the, this, 
civilian world and, and everything becomes about, well, how, what is the dollar attached to this job? Like, is it worth it or is it not? And, and I think that for, I told them for me, it took me, it took me four or five years to really kind of take some hard knocks and realize I was doing some different jobs that didn't have any, any, uh, real value to, again, like I, I, I'd made just enough money to pay my bills and do the things I needed to do, but I didn't have any impact on, on a scalable amount of people. I didn't, I wasn't affecting people's lives. And ultimately that hole that you mentioned was still there for me because I knew that I just could do more. And I knew that I, I could be in, impactful and, and, and purpose, I guess what we really talk about is purpose, right? Like right. having a, pur- a purpose driven life is, uh, is the part that I was missing. I mean, I actually had a company where when I got out of the Navy, I was running uh, an excavation business. So, I mean, it was super fun because I, as a boy, you always want to drive excavators and dump trucks and bulldozers. Right. And so I did that and I, and I, I was, it was fun and I was, I was uh, making enough money to do the things that I wanted to do, but I was lacking purpose. And so that's what I told these guys at the elite meet. I said, look, you know, like there's all these different choices, roads you can go down. Um, but take it from me, like find the one that has the purpose because you're not going to be happy without f- fulfilling a purpose. And, and it could be different for everybody. Um, maybe it's go take that investment banker job, make $10 million and then use your philanthropic um, money to impact organizations like, you know, what you do, Jacob, or what we do at deliver fund. And, and so you're, you're, you know, everybody has a different role to play, uh, but just find something that you're going to find purpose in. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's one of the big things is when we, when we, when we talk about things like this, that it, it's always like you, like you said, it's important to make sure we let folks know that, Hey, those other things are just as important. You can be just as impactful in those ways to not feel like that, that thing is not just as valuable to the big thing that we all need to accomplish. But you're, you're, um, you're, you're scratching a a particular itch in me as well with that. It's very interesting that if, if you're a mission minded person and that could be a military experience or you're in some kind of, you maybe you grew up around some kind of ministry or uh, you did work some kind of first responder type job. If you get away from that, you may be okay for a little while, mm-hmm. but that that soul that has a a drive to be on mission is going to continually be a, in a discontentment unless you actually start pursuing something that 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 is a part of a mission. Um, Absolutely. And it sounds like that for you that was a big driving factor. So you're in the ex- excavation business. What was that? St- what was that? So what was next? What was after that? How long were you in the Navy? So I did 10 years in the Navy, actually, okay. not to count days, but 10 years and 10 days. <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then from there, I uh, moved back to Montana and, you know, what we call God's country. Sure. And right up there near Glacier Park, up in the mountains. And, you know, and I, and I just absolutely love it. So I started my own business and I, and I ran that for about three years. I mean, I, I ran it longer, but really for the first three years, that's all I did. 
And then one of my buddies from the, um, that I'd worked with in the SEAL teams called me up and said, look, um, here's a job. It's over in the Middle East. Actually, he wouldn't tell me where or with who, uh, but he said it was pretty cool. And so I said, well, how much do they pay and, and how much do I got to work? And it actually ended up being a private contracting job where I could go over and work for uh, one of our intelligence agencies. Sure. And then we, it was really cool because um, I could go over there and I ended up going to Iraq and I did uh, in total, I think I did 17 trips over there a couple months at a time usually. And, and so I could come back and forth to Montana. And, but again, uh, it scratched that itch sure. a little bit of a little bit of the action and a little bit of um, a little bit of purpose in there, but really it still wasn't like, it wasn't like I was fulfilling my destiny or, or my purpose. So at the end, of, so I did that for five and a half years. Um, I could still come home and do some excavation projects here and there. So, I mean, money was great. I had plenty of money. I was doing, doing fine on all of that. Of course, I was still single and living, living uh, pretty selfishly and, and freely. <clears throat> and then I left Baghdad in 2014, like February 1st of 2014, and, and jumped onto a political campaign. So a friend of mine, a guy named Ryan Zinke, Ryan was uh, running for U.S. Congress in Montana. And in Montana, again, the population was pretty small. We were like a million people. So we only have one U.S. congressman. You get two senators, but we only have yeah. one congressman. So as the sole congressman from Montana, it's actually kind of a big deal, pretty big race. And so um, I helped him uh, for that year or eight months, I guess, uh, campaigning. And that's, that's really where it was a good thing for me there, too, because I guess previous with with all the other things I had going on, I was starting to get into a mindset of um, a little bit like a prepper, right? Where, where I'm just going to have enough food and, and uh, ability and, and ammo. Right. And I'm going to have a place up in the mountains. So like, I'm good, but everybody else can, um, you know, sink. Right. Well, it was really good for me to get involved at least for that year in politics and, and, and understand and realize, uh, and, and Zinke used to say this a lot, like what man breaks, man can fix, you know? And so, well, there is a lot of things that we look at that are broken in the world. Um, and with our, our government and our society, um, you know, we have the power to fix those. And that's what rolls me back to thinking about my grandfather and saying, well, you know, here's a guy who's just, he was just invested in people. He was always investing in people. He was always behind the scenes, helping, doing stuff, whether it be in the church, uh, whether it be through the Rotary Club, whether it be through any of these, these different vehicles um, to, to lift people up. And so I started to realize two things. One, I actually had a gift in uh, being able to talk to people and relate to people. And, and, and so it was good for the campaign, but um, it was just very interesting for me to, to run across the state, meet a lot of people, see where they were at, what their problems were. And, uh, you know, it wasn't me that was, uh, the, the guy on the ticket. Um, but I had people that said, well, I haven't met Ryan Zinke, but I'll vote for him because I met you and I like you and I, you know, I, and I can relate. So I just started to kind of go down that path a little bit and say, you know what, like I, I, I need to come out of the woods sure. and be a little, 
would be a little bit more um, part of the solution, right? Um, so that's that was a that was a shifting point for me. And and uh, as I realized, like, okay, I, I need to be part of the solution. As that campaign came to an end, I had the opportunity to go back and work overseas, make good money, uh, keep doing what I had been doing before, uh, or I could really ramp up my excavation company, especially now that I had a lot of contacts in the oil fields and this and that. And so I, I had a, a variety of, of options that I could go and do all things that were potentially make more money and do, you know, build bigger business, whatever. Uh, and I chose the one thing that made the least amount of money. Matter of fact, uh, the first year that I jumped in with my buddy, Nick, who, it was, it was his idea to start deliver fun. And he had told me about what he was planning to do. And he was a special agent at the CIA. And so we had had lunch a couple of years prior and he said, this is what I'm going to do. And I'm going to set up this organization to do counter human trafficking. And from the couple of the first stories, I just said, I'm, I'll do that whenever you're ready to go. Like just say, when I'm in. And so it, the timing lined up pretty well because at the end of the political campaign, I called him up. I said, where, where are you with this? When do you uh, want to pull the trigger? And he said, I, I get out of uh, the CIA in March. And so I said, well, cool. That's four months out. I'll, I'll start fundraising or whatever we need to do from right now. But that fundraising that I thought would be so easy, I think I raised like, well, we raised maybe $150,000 that first year but I believe I probably got paid like $10,000 and I had a mortgage and I had all kinds of other things going. So, you know, I was just going in the hole, um, especially having worked almost a year on the political campaign, which I was getting paid uh, less than my bills were. And then rolling right into making that choice to say, you know what, like this is the right thing to do. It's the impactful thing. And it's, I know that there's a purpose and a reason behind it, but Holy smokes. Like, I don't know how I'm going to, fund my own life, uh, going down that road. And I, I actually had to sell, um, some of the things I owned. I, I sold a lot of the excavation equipment to fund myself just to, to get through the first couple of years of, uh, of doing this. And, and now here we are four years later and, you know, I've, I've got a, a, a livable salary and we we've got 30 people working for wow. the organization. And, and so things are moving fast, but man, those first couple of years were certainly, Certainly, um, riding that fence, but it was pure determination, will, and and uh, persistence, and and just not quitting and never giving up and saying like there is a purpose for why I'm doing this. It's just you know just sticking. Yeah, with I'm going to get back to that whole not quitting and persistence and patience being <clears throat> massively underrated. But one thing that you had mentioned a, a couple of minutes ago was uh, you had identified a gift and being able to connect and speak with people. Was that something that, um, when did you pick up on that? Did somebody else kind of give you a clue or an idea that you had uh, a particular gift or skill set in that area? Was it just something that you kind of picked up by being engaged in the campaign or something happened before? I think it's a combination of things. When I was growing up, I had uh, three siblings, but my parents, my parents, I had great parents and, uh, I mean, often on the way home from church, they would say, Hey, so-and-so had, uh, mentioned they had a conversation with one of you kids and they were just very impressed with, um, how you interacted with them as, 
basically, even though you're, we were kids, we were interacting with them kind of on a, not an adult level, but like having a, having a, an easy conversation. Right. And so I think that like, I've always had a, had a ability to easily have conversations with people. Um, but I really had to rehone my, I don't know about rehome my skill, but rediscover that I, that I had that ability and, and to open it up and, and let it blossom a little bit. So, you know, I had one individual who he was, he was one of the top um, oncologists in the nation. He lived in San Diego and he was, he came up to help us on the campaign and he, just because he was friends of the guy running for the race. And so I, I spent some time with him in, in the truck running around and, and he was a huge encouragement to me. And he just said, you know, you, you, he just, he stood back while I was talking to people. And now granted I was, I was trying to sell somebody else in, in their campaign. Right. Um, but, but as I was doing it, I would, I would relate to people. And so he, he stood back and just said, you know, Jeremy, you, you've got, you've got a gift and you don't, I don't think you understand it, but, um, so I said, okay, well, great. And I take it for a grain of salt, but, um, as you move forward, you start to reflect back on that, you know, you know what, I I can do this and, and I do have that ability and, and I, and I need to move forward with, uh, with pushing that envelope to see, you know, where, where it takes me. And it's been amazing because, uh, as you know, when you're, part of a nonprofit, you, you, uh, have to go out and find, um, donor dollars and you gotta, you gotta find people that will invest. And so you end up in these conversations with, with some high net worth people, very successful people, people that often, um, we would be, I have, I have other people, even in my my organization that say like, aren't you scared or aren't you like, uh, intimidated to go and talk to these, (laughs) these people? Like, absolutely not. I mean, they, yeah, they might have a billion dollars, but they, they put on their pants sure. the same way we do. Right. And they all have problems. And when you realize that like, no matter what economic level you're at or what level you're at on anything, we all, we all are, we're all in the same boat and we all have, we all have our own set of issues. And, um, and so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's for me having conversations with people on, on any level is, uh, is something that I actually enjoy to do. Yeah. And that's what kind of, I, one of the other reasons why I made a note of it is that, that decade in, in the teams that just in that line of work, um, military wide, that the ability to connect to people is typically just your immediate group. It's just, it's not something you're able to always go straight to an 07 and have a conversation that is, that is fluid compared to, (laughs) compared to the conversations that we, that you have now that, and that you had to kind of have that gift identified. So there was, I would imagine that there was kind of a time there where uh, muzzled, maybe the right, maybe the word, but I, I don't know. Maybe you could speak to that. Maybe not. Maybe you were able to kind of uh, tap back into that in that in that time. But it's I would guess that there maybe was a time where you weren't quite able to to identify or see that you had that ability. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, in the military, uh, I don't think that I scored very high on military bearing. <laughs> I think that when, when they gave me my evaluations, it was like, you got, you know, five being the highest, you got fives and operations on this, this, all these different uh, performance markers. And then military bearing, you got a three, which is like about as low right. as they go. And, and it's like, I just, I 
wasn't always a very good respecter of those, those boundaries, but this is probably why. And I think even as a child with school teachers, I did the same thing. Like if, if, um, if you earn my respect, I would respect you and I would do anything. I would follow you. I do, I would work overtime for you. But if you, if you had a rank or a position, but you didn't earn my respect, then I just wasn't going to be respectful. Um, and that's, that's some advice that if I could go back in time, I would give myself, right. Where I would say like, no matter what, be respectful. (laughs) But, but that was, that was my stubbornness of myself. Um, but I mean, that's where, yeah, I mean, having those conversations in the military was, uh, was a little bit different, uh, is, you know, now I, I get, cause you remember like being in the military, if, if, if you got the chance to talk to a politician, you had to be very careful what you said. And, and, uh, that was always like a, a really big oh, deal. Yeah. And now, <laughs> right. And now, I mean, I was in DC a couple of weeks ago, talking to a group of, uh, congressmen and, you know, I, I'm, I'm like, you guys work for me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's definitely a shift. It's, it's, uh, yeah, that's, that's a massive shift, uh, to say the <laughs> least. Yep. When, um, when you're on on the deployments, was there any times during the deployments where maybe seeing how things were, how life was lived in other parts of the world, did those moments ever kind of start playing into maybe seeing some evidence of what Deliver Fund is today for you to kind of see or have, <clears throat> maybe it was some human trafficking something going on elsewhere that was maybe some of the indicators that led to what you do now today. Sure. I would say that there's uh, as we were doing operations through, whether it be through the SEAL teams or the intelligence agencies, there's, there's a lot of uh, reporting on like, Hey, we're going to go after this bad guy because they're, they're uh, opium dealer and drug lord and this and this and this. And then it was always like a subtitle at the bottom somehow that it was like, Oh yeah. And they're selling children. Um, and so, but we never really like as Nick, who's our CEO, like we never really had a box to put that in. And that was never really like the thing that we did because our tax dollars that we spend in this country, they go for, um, national security. Well, what does that mean? It means guns, drugs, and terrorism. So as we're, over there, we're fighting terrorism, but you know, that's, those are the baskets that we fund human trafficking up until very recently wasn't even a talking point. And so, you know, it's interesting. The, um, U S state department puts out a, a human trafficking, uh, report that's that they grade all the other countries. And it wasn't until 2010 that they actually put a wow. grade on our own country. And so, you know, that's one of the conversations that I often have. And like when I was in DC a couple of weeks ago, talking to this group of congressmen, it was one of the things that I tried to portray to them saying, um, what, what's happening in America is yes, we have human trafficking and, and, and we've seen that in other countries. Um, and it, and it's like, wow, that's a horrible, horrible thing. And what we think about, I think as most Americans, we're like, oh yeah, my church supports this human trafficking anti-human trafficking group that does something mm-hmm. in Cambodia. So we're always thinking like, Oh, it's in Th- Thailand or Cambodia. And when you go over there, it's very evident because you can see it on the street. And, 
But what we don't realize as an American society that in the U.S., we have human trafficking happening here at a epidemic proportion. And, and it's, it's, it's a horrible, horrible thing. And when you think about the ages of these kids that are coming into it, uh, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children has said consistently over the years that between really 12 to 14 years old is the age of kids that are that are coming into being human trafficked. And in the, in the U.S., it's primarily wow. for sex trafficking. We have labor trafficking and some of the agricultural stuff, and, and there's other forms of, of labor trafficking. But like primarily in the U.S., it's sex trafficking. And so when you think about uh, a young child, and I get, again, that's the average age, and we work with law enforcement all around the country who we have cases with. Um, we have one case that we were... Um, we had trained this law enforcement officer and they, they had a case with a four-year-old child. So, and it was actually a paternal grandparent who was selling that child. And uh, it was a very sick, sick thing. But what, what we as Americans also need to understand is that like the, per, the majority of human trafficking that's happening uh, is really in the U S um, on a, on an overall scale. It's it's massive right here, and and I would say that it's predominantly American citizens exploiting um, women and children who are American citizens and and selling to American citizens. And so, one of the things that Nick and I talk about a lot is the the human trafficking market around the around the world globally is actually driven by the American dollar and the American male. So even to fight human trafficking in other other countries, um, it's best if we focus here first because it has a ripple effect into all those other places. But seeing like the seeing the the way that people live in other countries, you take India for example. Um, India has a different culture and a different um, way that they value life, you know, and, and probably you might see this a lot in Africa too, but there's uh, lots of places around the world. They don't, they don't have the same, maybe like Judeo Christian roots that we have in the U S where we have, where we can say, this is, this is what we're defining as morality. And this is, you know, this is how we value life. And so in a lot of these other countries, it's fairly common and acceptable to even sell your own child because one, you're super poor and you just need money or two, um, you know, it's just, it's just, they don't have the same value of life. And so in order to, for us to go over there and change that culture, much more difficult than it is for us to here at home to say, look, we all can agree that like selling a 12 year old for, for sex to anybody is not okay. <laughs> you're speaking into that is the culture. Um, and when we're, when they're trying to just start at the basics, sure. because it's, it's where, um, that culture, that culture is. So trying to change an entire culture is way too large and massive of an effort to do in the, with what the mission at hand is trying to accomplish. Well, and the other problem you have too is corruption, right? So I mean, oh, a, lot those, yes. a lot of those governments are so corrupt. So it, you know, sometimes it's not funny, but it's, it's, it's some of these organizations that go over and they're like, we're going to rescue all these kids from this, um, this brothel 
in Cambodia. Mm. And it's like, yeah, but what's going to happen to them next? And then not only that, but like, did the traffickers get arrested? Because oftentimes you do see where the, there's the law enforcement in conjunction with an organization, or whatever they're like, they'll, they'll even arrest some, some quote unquote traffickers, but it's in the front door and out the back door. Right. And then it's right. business as usual. So that's the one thing that we have um, as a advantage and we can leverage here in the United States is like, you know, we have, a, I would say at least one of the least corrupt governments, <laughs> I would say sure. that we're, we're without corruption, but uh, <clears throat> you know, we, we have a, a phenomenal police force in the U S um, at the local state and federal level. And we, again, we can agree on um, that we are a country of, of laws and justice and, and so we are at least marching in the right direction. But one of the things that has allowed this problem to get out of hand is, uh, and this is something most people don't understand either. So just to throw it out there for the, for the audience is, uh, as a talking point is again, a statistic that was actually from the national center for missing exploited children. Uh, and, and this was in an investigative report for the Senate when they were investigating a company called backpage.com. And so, they said that between the years of 2005 and 2010, suspected trafficking of minors in the U.S. for sex had gone up 846%. Oh, my gosh. Right? How does that happen? Well, it happens because we have technology. So what you have a smartphone, you have an iPhone, you have apps. You can order a, you can order a child for sex and have them delivered just the same as you would order a pizza and have it delivered to your hotel room. Unbelievable. So how does that happen? Well, you think about like the, like our, our younger days, I mean, it was tw maybe 20 years ago. Like imagine the time when I, you know, we were first coming to the military. I mean, it was, yes, we had the internet, but it was, it was still fairly new. And, and really if we were talking about, um, human trafficking, we weren't thinking about, we weren't thinking about any of that happening in the U S we were thinking like, okay, well there's prostitution, but prostitution has been around forever. And these are girls on the street that are probably like on the red light district is very much out in the open and you can right. drive by and you can see it. But with technology, we've allowed this to happen, um, behind closed doors. And so now I mentioned, um, this is actually a really cool story because, um, backpage.com was the largest purveyor of sex advertising um, in the world. And they were, their headquarters was based in Dallas, Texas. So I'm actually sitting today right now in their old headquarters. Wow. Because about a year ago, actually, I think it was uh, April 14th, maybe of last year, um, almost exactly a year ago, they were seized by the feds for they what they had was they had they had actually multiple websites that all fumbled through backpage.com and and so i think one of them was called like evilempire.com sincity.com names that are clearly not nefarious at all right but right. backpage looked very much like craigslist and so but what they sold on there whether where they made all their money was through the the escort ads so they're selling these ad, escort ads a dollar to four dollars depending and and so but they were even helping their, their clients who were posting just a couple dollar ads. 
they were helping them change their verbiage as to not get caught or flagged by the police um, when it was obvious that they were they were advertising in minors for sex online. So, I mean, it's escort ads. So, like, let's call it what it is. Like, primarily, that's going to be prostitution. But within that, there was human trafficking, and within that, there was trafficking of minors for sex, and then um, they were also laundering money and a host of other things. So finally we got some better legislation passed that same year last year as well. So in combination with that, and then, and then, uh, the CEO taking a plea deal, uh, their, their, uh, their headquarters is now deliver funds headquarters because we were, we were also a primary intelligence source to the feds and to some state attorney general's offices. And so, to get them basically, uh, again, like on the money laundering and, and selling children for sex online. And so, but all that happened because they had the ability to, to use the internet and it was all in the open. I mean, it was sex advertising and that still happens today. We, we were able to take that one big site down, but you know, there's other websites that are vying for that position. And so, um, that's kind of the market that, that has, uh, has evolved in the U S. So it's something that we don't necessarily see, uh, unless you're involved in it, unless you're law enforcement or unless you're a purchaser somehow and you're looking for it. But if you live in, you know, any one of these nice neighborhoods and you kind of live in your bubble and you don't really think about it, but the reality is like human trafficking in the U S is not a respecter of area codes and or zip codes. And so it's happening in the, in higher economic, neighborhoods is happening in lower ones. I mean, it's, it's happening across the board and we see it um, every day. Knowing what you got, knowing what you guys do today, you making the choice, the decision to leave the excavation work, the business, that line of work and do what you're doing at deliver fund today. That, that makes sense. But at the time, at the time, how difficult was the decision or was the decision an easy one? That's a great question. And I would say that at the time, in my simplistic mind, it seemed easy. Uh, I didn't realize it was kind of like, <laughs> it wasn't so much different than me joining the Navy and saying I was going to be a SEAL. Like, right. it's not easy in my own mind. Um, <laughs> it wasn't until you're in SEAL training where you're like, this is harder than I thought. Um, and, and somewhat similar on this, too, because I, I really had had a conversation with Nick about uh, a couple of girls who had been uh, essentially trafficked. Their their father had taken them to Pakistan because he was dual citizen, and but he had sold them to the uncle. And the mother had zero recourse. And as a country, we didn't have the ability to to go and get them back either. And so th- that story was the initial story where I was just like, "Well, we can do that." And I'm yeah down. And so like, let's just say when and. And, uh, you know, that, and then more and more stories, but now as, uh, every day that goes, goes, uh, in the books with deliver fund and we see one, it's, it's, uh, we see successes, which is amazing. And, and that's why I think I get up every day and, and want to do it more is because of the wins that we get. So it's not just a a -a whack-a-mole kind of issue where, you know, you get one here, and then one pops up over here. No, we actually have a scalable, repeatable model that is crushing 
human trafficking where we're applying it and where we have the resources for it. So that's really exciting. I think just that piece of it where we're actually solving a problem. Yeah. But to the stories that you hear of of these girls where you're just like, that's how can that even be possible? And and for us, the very first month that we were doing operations, um, matter of fact, the first well, I'll tell you the two first operations that we did. And so if this didn't just lock it down for me, um, the first one was on a girl. <clears throat> it was a, it was the law enforcement was looking for a guy who they were like, this guy's a trafficker. We know, um, we know a little bit about him. We don't actually have his name. We just know more of him. And we know that he will probably be coming through this town and he will probably have one victim with him. Within a matter of six hours from us getting involved with law enforcement on that case, we had identified who he actually was, his true name, his uh, location. And then we sent people out to go observe and see where he was at. And he wasn't just going into one room in this hotel. He was actually going into three. So when law enforcement showed up, they kicked three doors. He was trafficking a girl who was pregnant. He was trafficking a girl that had Down syndrome. And then, and then a third girl. And so, I mean, we actually consider that four victims rescued because like I said, one of them was pregnant. Um, but that never occurred in my mind that somebody would be doing like going after a niche market, assumingly like with those kinds of, like, it just seems so dark and so evil. And then, um, and the very next, I think it was the, the, the next case, one of the, our very next cases was uh, when we first started, we, she, we actually have a video of this girl on our website and we call her Samantha. And Samantha was, was that case that I talked about. She was 12 years old when she was first trafficked. Her mother was a heroin addict. Her father had disowned them and lived in the same city. I mean, she's an American girl. Um, She's 12 years old, first trafficked. It's a period of 10 years before the liver fund started and was able to help her and actually get her trafficker put in, put in jail. And so for that period of 10 years, she sold six to 20 times a day is what she said. On average, what, what we're putting down is a, we think a conservative number is about four point or about 5.4 times a day that a human trafficking victim is sold for sex in, in the U S wow. and so, I mean, if you do the math on that and you say, okay, um, if it was 365 days a year, I think it's 1,971 or something like that. Um, and, and that's, I mean, let's call that what it is like, great. Yes. So imagine, imagine like that many, like, especially a child who is, who is raped that many times for her, she had to, she had to completely block out, what she was doing and completely take herself mentally to a different place just so she could survive, just so she could buy. Now imagine, you know, one year, two years, in her case, 10 years. And so when we finally got, she was 22 years old when we finally uh, were able to help her, but that was the history of, of her history. So you look at her at 22 and you're like, well, this is a heroin addicted prostitute, right? Like what, I mean, it's, it's pretty hard to have a um, legal case because she's not a minor um, and she's probably just choosing to be a prostitute. So that's the way that we look at it, but you don't realize the history that brought her to that point. And, and that's what I think uh, is really exciting for deliver fund. Um, We're able to, 
use technology and look look behind the scenes, see who's actually trafficking these victims, see where they're at, identify them, locate them, and really just like we did overseas with our you know our military and our intelligence community, we we do a, the equip, train, advise model, and so we can take law enforcement in the U.S. and we can say, look, here's here's a uh, here's the technology package that we've helped create. That's the best technology in the world to go after um, the traffickers. And cause really that's where deliver fund um, that's, you know, there's organizations that go after like rescuing victims or, or do the rehabilitation and awareness side. Um, I would make the case that to rescue victims is really in the U S is the job of law enforcement. Um, you can get away with that a little bit more in overseas where the laws are different. But in the U.S., especially if it's the case of a minor, it's actually a kidnapping charge if you rescue a minor without um, their legal guardian parent right. with you. So, so that's really a job for law enforcement to do. And so we need to equip them. So, and so we, we provide the technology suite of intelligence tools to figure out on those like sex advertisements, who's behind it? Is it actually a human trafficker? or a human trafficking victim, and then, and then start to build out an intelligence case. And then, so we give them the training on how to use it, on how to build out these cases, a very target-centric methodology. Uh, and, then, and then we advise them on the back end. So we can, we can build cases for them and pass those to them where we can't create evidence, but uh, what we can do is we can create intelligence and we can pass that on in a way in which they can replicate it very quickly with the, the term is actually parallel construction. So law enforcement, law enforcement can parallel construct that case that we built. And the, the great thing about this, and again, why I get excited about this is, is because what was some of the best law enforcement investigators in the U S it was taking them on the short end, 21 days to build a human trafficking case. Mm-hmm. And with this, uh, technology, this methodology, uh, we're, we're having cases built in a matter of hours. So that's really important. If you're Samantha and you're literally being raped six to 20 times a day, uh, you know, there's, there's victims out there who, who, uh, often what times by the time law enforcement is able to figure out what's going on and get a warrant, they've already been transferred to the next city. And so it's very important that we move that we have the agility and ability to move very quickly and get law enforcement to be able to get warrants and get in and make arrests very quickly before these girls are just disappear again. So, right. And we've talked a lot about um, what you guys do and when, when I knowing what you guys are and how you fit into this piece, you have the, you have a very unique, Actually, to me, it makes sense. It's the it's the it's the most accurate to me, <clears throat> most experienced team of people for this end of human trafficking. So, tell us a little bit about who Deliver Fund is in terms of the makeup and the staff, and who sure. the kind of folks are that are working there. I mean, we're very blessed to have just the top top level individuals, and and really where we pulled our talent <clears throat> is from the people who have already been serving careers in uh, counterterrorism and and we're repurposing them and repurposing some of that technology and and that mission um into counter human trafficking so counterterrorism now doing um counter human trafficking so we have for example we have um one of our senior analysts i mean she was 
Air Force uh, intelligence analyst, then ended up uh, being working for the NSA as an analyst, and then got loaned out to the FBI as a terrorist watch lister. So, I mean, she is a huntress. I call her a huntress. Um, and now she's got, you know, she's got a couple of kids. And so she's, she's able to work from home quite a bit. So literally <laughs> while she's making dinner for the kids, uh, with one hand, she's on her cell phone texting human traffickers and setting up, uh, you know, fake dates and, and running these bad guys, you know, off, off the side of her hip with her other, her other. And so, I mean, you have, you have people like that. That is awesome. Just the, the visual of her <laughs> ringing guys up. <laughs> Oh, yeah, from home right? and just get oh that is beautiful yeah it's uh it, it's it's fun to watch her work and she is really good at it and so um we have other uh we have prior fbi guys we have prior uh some law enforcement but really people that were at the top level on the federal side that had all the funding that we needed to fight wars on in in uh against terrorists taking people that have all about those skills, all that training, NSA, CIA, um, FBI, uh, and then, and then bringing those, those resources down to a local level, because in the U S the people that, that really do the heavy lifting, uh, against this are, are the local police departments and the sheriff's offices, um, because there's not enough federal agents, even though they have a mandate to go against human trafficking, there's not. So they have to, um, utilize the, the local forces on the ground as well. So that's where we, we train all the, I mean, we've trained the Bureau of Indian Affairs because a lot of this happens on Indian reservations as well. We've trained um, U.S. Uh, State Department special agents, but mostly we're focused on the, uh, the local side. And so um, we, like I said, we equip them, train them, advise them, help them build those cases. And it's really, really exciting. Like the reason that I, um, I, I never set out to be, in a nonprofit. Like I, it was never something it's actually really funny because my younger brother, um, had a turn with uh, brain cancer when he was like 21 years old. And that really set him on a course where he got into the nonprofit world and was doing all of, and I was, I used to tell him, I'm like, you, you know, at some point you're going to have to get a real job. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Like you, you, you can't just do nonprofit stuff your whole life because everybody thinks, well, that means that you can't make a living. And it's, it's just a different, uh, you're dependent on other people to give you money to, you know, it's like we have, have this mindset, right. But, um, but we realized very quickly, like law enforcement doesn't have the funds, um, to, to pay for, they wouldn't be able to pay for the training or the technology that they need. Right. So, we realized very quickly, like we, we had to set this up as a nonprofit. And, uh, and so I've been learning a lot about <laughs> the, the, the nonprofit world, but here we are. And, you know, we have a, it's, it's been phenomenal to see the successes. And, and to now, as I sit here in Dallas, I sit here in this office space, which was previously held by backpage.com. And, and now we're, we're, we're pushing that darkness away and turning that to light. And, and we we're, we have what we call the ITAC, the International Human Trafficking Analysis Center, which pushes intelligence to those law enforcement across the nation and eventually internationally too. But it's it's a centralized brain for all things human trafficking, and so that's uh, you know we're we're tracking these guys no matter where they go, and we're building databases, we're putting all that in there, and uh, and we're putting all law enforcement on the same on the same um, 
platform. So instead of them being siloed, uh, now, now they're able to start building a case in Dallas and say, oh, look, here's one in Georgia. Matter of fact, this associates with uh, this case in Atlanta. And now I know who to talk to law enforcement wise. And, and now it's a cross state line. So it's a federal case, which means, you know, possibly higher um, standards. So like all that is, is, uh, is exciting. Yeah. And that's the, you, you, being able to connect those agencies like that is super huge and actually bringing solutions to the problem. And the, in the way you said, bringing light into darkness, I mean, you guys re- physically redeemed a building yeah. and by bringing light into that space, because with that, with that metaphor, darkness cannot beat light. And you're able to operate that way, check off that block of being able to fulfill mission. And this is something that is, when, you, when you're able to connect these agencies together, it is something that can take a huge dent into the human trafficking. Absolutely. So here's a number that you're really going to like. Um, we've been saying for a while now, but as we get properly resourced, within the next seven years, we can reduce human trafficking by 80% in the U.S. Wow. So that's the scalable model, the scalable version, you know, and, and again, we're, we're making disciples out of law enforcement. We're giving them what they need, the tools to go hunt or fish, and, and then they can go out and, and work. And then we just are there as a support system for them. Uh, but, but ultimately, we're, we're scaling this across the entire country and casting this net so that no matter where you are, you, you've got no place to run as a human trafficker. Wow. Wow, that's unbelievable. I mean, did you guys, I mean, when you think about your excavation days, <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, did you, this, this was never a vision that you, something that you thought of. I, look, I mean, even, even, even in your operator days, did you ever wow. think, think never. this would be what was happening in 2019? Never did. Not only that, but when I first had that conversation with Nick, we were sitting at a little diner in DC, um, probably like 2000, probably 2010, um, or 11. And we were talking about this and he, he was already pulling the resources together and saying, okay, this is what I think needs to happen. And we're going to start stealing some things from, you know, the intelligence community and, and putting, putting together the whole plan. And I said, yeah, but somebody, somebody is already doing this. Surely when we have the largest government in the world, we have, we have departments and agencies that do everything. And, and we, we sat there, uh, and had a pretty, pretty good lens in to see what all the different capabilities were, either from the government side or from other organizations. And, uh, and I was like, surely somewhere, someone is already doing this. And, uh, and nobody was. And so we said, I, that's the point where I said, man, when you're ready to go, like I'm all in, like, I, I, I know we can do this in my heart. Um, even if we only saved one person, you know, it's like worth it. That's kind of cliche, but it's still like, you know, it is, but now, but now the exciting piece is like, and I did not, and I did not have this much vision. Like it's, it's amazing. And I, we just sit back and we go, you know, people are like, how do you know this is your calling? Or how do you know that like God is, you know, pushing you to do this? And it's like, because it's working, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because, because if you look at the, the speed at which we are having the successes and the, and the amount of, of things that have just fallen, fallen into our laps 
um, technology wise, operationally wise, and, and also even in the um, philanthropy side, people, it's like the jar of oil. I mean, we've just continually been getting just enough to do the thing, the next thing that we need to do. And yeah. so it's, but it's, it's putting together something so big that's going to have such a massive, massive impact. And I, I guess right. that's where um, I had no idea that it was going to be this big or this successful. And, and now I, I certainly have a much bigger vision than I ever did four years sure. ago. So, well, that's the, you, you said that you had that thought of somebody's, somebody has to already be doing this. And if now that you know that what today is, it, I think a lot of folks need to know that if they feel like that there's a gap, that there probably is a gap. And if you feel like that you could right. fill that gap, <clears throat> then go do it because there it's not safe to assume that somebody is doing something because it always requires those things that you'd mentioned, patience and persistence and hard work. And typically in these fields of service, a lot of times people are going to tap out. They're, they're just, it's going to the, the effort, what it takes to get the job done. Folks eventually are going to decide that it's just too big for them to do it. Sure. And that thing you said about the patience and persistence being so important to where you guys are today. I just think folks really need to think about that. It's how we exist at Orphan Aid. I mean, we, we have to keep pushing, just have to. Yeah. And there's, I mean, there's, there's a level of stress in this that I don't recall ever having when I was Navy SEAL. Mm. <laughs> right. I mean, it is, it is a different kind of stress, but when you have the stress of like having to provide for, your business and your organization and, and, and your family, because you're, and you're not making as much money as you're used to. Um, all of those things, like they play heavy on you, but, uh, you know, I think that it always comes back to, for me, you know, my faith is, is in Christ and my faith is saying Mm -hmm. like, at the end of the day, I mean, I am dependent on God and all the resources that are needed to do this. Yeah, they belong to him, and if I can just, if I can just be the the hands and feet, and just go out and do, um, that's it. Ooh, go out and do. That's been something I've been harping on for quite some time to folks. Is just, just, just go do. Nike had it right. Just, just do it. Yeah. Don't think that you're not, um, you're not ready because it's as simple as just taking one step. Just, just go do it. All right, Jeremy. So. For the folks who are right there, they're on the dock. They're ready to step out into the unknown. They feel like they're called to something more. They're just, they're hesitant on on taking that step. What is it they need to know? If there's one big thing that you would like to tell folks who are kind of at that, at that time of transition or looking to make that step, what do they need to know? Wow. Yeah. So my, my advice would be, again, go do, but I think in going to go do, be smart about it. I wouldn't recommend just going out and starting a nonprofit. I think we actually have probably enough nonprofits. Go find somebody that's doing good work and that aligns with what it is that you want to do. Uh, if, if no one's doing that, then you might have to start your own, your own business or your own nonprofit. That's fine. But I would recommend go find somebody that's already doing and uh, align yourself with them. Maybe it's through your church. Maybe it's uh, through a circle of friends. But find something that is going to fill that purpose 
and, and have impact. And I think you'll find fulfillment from that. I know you will. And so, I mean, for me, that it, it took me a, a period of years to, to progress down through that, to really get to where I am today. So I think having that persistence and just continually putting one step in front of the other, continually going out and doing, uh, just make it happen. Um, that's, that's pretty much what I've got. That's awesome. That's it. It's, it sounds so simple, but it really is that simple. Just go do. That's awesome. That's awesome advice. I mean, that, I, I've, I tell folks that all the time who kind of ask that. I'm like, just go step. There's an organization somewhere who's doing what it is you feel like you're called to do. Just go engage. They need your help. Just go do it. Man, awesome stuff, Jeremy. Well, thanks a lot, Jake. I appreciate having me on. Yeah, man. Thanks so much for uh, coming on with us today. Love Period Podcast. You guys are doing great work at Deliver Fund. Thank you. Thanks a lot, man. You bet. See you. Bye. Just another amazing story. And here's here's what I love about this story is Jeremy said it right there, is he did not envision where Deliver Fund is today. That wasn't what was thought about when they began, when they took a step, when they saw a gap, they saw what their skills were and they saw a gap that wasn't being met. And they decided to fill that gap. Where they're at today was not in the vision. And that's where a lot of us, I think we get hung up. We get hung up in hearing people's great stories or people who have accomplished great things. And we look at where, we look at their success of where they are now. We don't consider where they came from. We don't consider the struggle and the steps that they had to take to get there. And we look at their success and we, we, we feel overwhelmed. We feel like we don't have what it takes to make that step. You heard Jeremy say it, patience and persistence. We talk about it all the time here. You were created for something great. Sometimes that thing is visual. Sometimes that thing is small, but you were created for something great. All it takes is to take a step. We hope Jeremy's story today and the story of Deliver Fund, we hope it just inspires you just a little bit. You're standing right there on the dock. You're waiting to take a step. You know that you were created for more between heaven and earth than what you're currently doing. And we need you to know that that's true. If you feel that, that that's true, and all you've got to do is take a step. It's that simple. We want to thank you guys for listening to the podcast. If you want to, go ahead and check out more about uh, Jeremy and the team over there at Deliver Fund at deliverfund.org. Lots of information about them and their organization. We want to thank you guys for just listening to the podcast. If you haven't subscribed already, go ahead and subscribe to us in iTunes. We're also available uh, on Stitcher as well, or you can subscribe directly to our RSS feed on SoundCloud. You can find out more about us at Orphanade Liberia and what we're up to in current news at orphanadeliberia.org, and you can see what's going on with us as an organization there. We have so many more fantastic stories we can't wait to share with you guys. So many amazing people that are doing some phenomenal things, some just some amazing things. We can't wait to share those stories. We just hope today's story just inspired you just a little bit, that it inspired one more set of hands for the work that needs to be done out there in this world. Thank you guys so much for listening. We'll see you next time.